In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is a special episode of the Vine Pair Podcast, where today I am joined by two lovely folks all the way from Italy, somewhere beautiful, make us all jealous when we hear more about it. That is uh, Antonio Zaccheo, who's the co-owner and expert manager at Carpenetto, and his co-owner and head winemaker, Caterina Sake. And Caterina, Antonio, thank you so much for your time today. Grazie mille. Oh, yeah. Grazie. Our pleasure. So, okay. Start, we'll start with the some of the best stuff right away. Where where are you two in Italy right now? Where do we find you? So Calpineto is founded from my father, Giovanni Carlo Sacchete and Antonio's father, Antonio Mario Zaccheo, in 1967. Uh, they started with produce Chianti Classico wines. The wine Chianti Classico for international level. Uh, today, uh, the Carpineto uh, ha- has uh, five different estates in Tuscany, in five different, completely different uh, terroir land, and um, today we produce uh, Chianti Classico, Vino Noble di Montepulciano, Brunello di Montalcino, and the wine from Maremma. Wonderful. I'm the winemaker because my father was the the owner and the the winemaker, and uh, I learned uh, this job, this passion from uh, from him. And I'm the sales guy, so basically it's like a restaurant. She's the head cook, and I'm the head waiter. There you go. That's a good. That's a good combo to have, and. Uh, Antonio, where where in Tuscany is the winery located? So we have, uh, as Caterina was saying, five estates. Okay. We were founded in Chianti Classico. Gotcha. So Greve and Chianti, northern okay. part of Chianti Classico. And then we have uh, those uh, four other estates in uh, in uh, Montepulciano, Montalcino, and in uh, and in Maremma. So that so to cover essentially all the you know classic uh, historic appellations of Tuscany, which was the founding father's dream back mm-hmm. in 1967. Yeah, and I think that's a fascinating place to spend just a moment is is the founding of the winery and what was going on in Italian wine at the time. For for those of our listeners who are more knowledgeable about Italian wine history, that period of time in the late 1960s will will definitely ring some bells as a really transformational period in Italian wine and in Tuscan wine. But um, could you speak a little bit about what was going on? What was the, as you mentioned, sort of the founding vision for the for your fathers and in what they were setting out to achieve with uh, the winery? So their, their idea was to make a world-class Chianti Classico in a time when Chianti used to come in a straw-covered bottle called Fiasco. And uh, walking the land, they scratched their head and said, hey, is a Fiasco more of a descriptor of uh, the shape of the bottle or is the Fiasco more a descriptor of the content? Because uh, the wines that were being made back then were not exciting. And so they wanted to make exciting wines. But this was a moment in which, you know, after the war, um, there was an economic boom. Everybody was going into the cities to work and find their jobs at the factories. And so sharecropping was falling apart. And uh, so uh, this is uh, Giancarlo and my father were always tell us the story, Caterina, right? Uh, that uh, you could buy in 1960s, you could buy a castle 
with 40 hectares of vineyards, that's about 100 acres, mm -hmm. uh, for the price of a nice Alfa Romeo. Wow. No, no, not a Ferrari. I didn't say Ferrari. Okay? <laughs> I said nice Alfa Romeo. But, you know, the two guys, you know, the two really reckless uh, youngsters, uh, they only had uh, enough money for a used uh, Fiat. And so that's why we started <laughs> with 25 acres, 30 acres actually of land, no castle, just an old, uh, an old building. And, uh, but with a dream, a dream of making a world-class Chianti Classico. And uh, that then evolved into making a world-class Tuscan wines uh, to export now today in 70 countries around the world. Yeah. And I want to ask a little bit about the winemaking, Katerina, and talking about sort of, you know, the this critical central grape to red wine production in Tuscany, Sangiovese, though, of course, it goes by a lot of different names, even throughout the region. But, you know, it's, I would imagine that learning from your father, learning, uh, you know, from childhood, you know, you, Sangiovese must feel like one of your best friends. You must feel like you know it sort of through and through. What is what is it like working with this variety? Again, for a lot of our audience here in the United States, Sangiovese is something that we might really enjoy drinking, but it's not cultivated much in the U.S., um, although I think, you know, you're seeing it planted a few places here and there. So, you know, what is what is it like to grow and to make wine from, from Sangiovese? So this is funny that uh, my father uh, is uh, is after they study he is study in uh, north of Italy in uh, very po in most popular uh, winemaking school and then uh, he's um, he's uh, transferred he, he he moved down to Tuscany down to Tuscany and uh, he started to take uh, confidence with Sangiovese's grape, mm -hmm. but he born in Prosecco area. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, this, um, he um, learned to me uh, how is the difference from Sangiovese, but in the same time, uh, he had a big passion with uh, uh, pro, uh, um, sparkling, sparkling wine style. And so we are, I think so, the first producer, the wine, the sparkling wine, Sharma method here in Tuscany. Oh, okay. So... Um, I love Sangiovese because I born here. I grow with the Sangiovese grape. <laughs> I think uh, today Sangiovese is like uh, my child. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, is for me is my favorite varieties because uh, it's very Toscan uh, and uh, is very um, characteristic of uh, characteristic of this mm -hmm. area. So it's very powerful. Uh, I think it's the best grapes for the long aging wine. So uh, yeah, I I think uh, Mick called me the Sangiovese's woman. Yes, <laughs> in different part because it's so funny because uh, we have five different uh, estates and five different area and we I. Uh, I'm, I play with the five, uh, uh, always Sangiovese scrape, but from five different, uh, completely different area. Mm -hmm. So, and the, the powerful of this scrape is uh, exciting, yeah. It is, uh, Sangiovese is, uh, as, uh, you know, Caterina uh, and her father has always said, it's like a chameleon. 
it really takes on the color and the character of the place from which it is grown. And that is why, you know, when Sangiovese, uh, and it has been attempted, you know, it's been planted in a lot of places in the world, but uh, nowhere does it get the, the results we get uh, here in Tuscany, the elegance, the grace, you know, the length on the palate, uh, you know, that typical Tuscan character, obviously, that is the terroir speaking, but uh, Sangiovese is uh, unlike other grapes like Chardonnay, uh, Cabernet, that travel well. Sangiovese doesn't travel well. It's a very yeah. finicky, very difficult grape to grow, very complicated to grow properly. But, you know, we luckily have been uh, um, uh, growing this uh, since Etruscan time. So we have slowly found uh, the right places, the right clones, and the right way of uh, of growing it so that i think that's uh that's the peculiarity of sangiovese yeah well you certainly don't have to uh you know convince me my first wine loves were all uh, sangiovese so i i certainly even from across the ocean here have a, a great fondness for the style and the variety i i do want to talk a little bit about some of the other um wines that you're making because this is the 30th anniversary of what i think is really a fascinating almost departure from what people might think of with uh, Carpinetto and, and producers in in uh, Tuscany generally, which is sort of looking at an, a market for wines that are still really reflective of Tuscany, of the, you know, kind of of the viticulture of the place, but are, you know, meant more as a, you know, kind of everyday drinking wine, uh, an approachable in their youth wine. And here I'm talking about the Dogoyolo line. And, and I want to ask a little bit about that uh, on two fronts. And we'll start with this one. As mentioned, this is the 30th anniversary. And when your father's kind of conceived of this wine and, and you know, sort of made this decision to go down this path with some of your production, what was what was their idea behind it? What did they what where did they see there kind of being a need for this style of wine that that wasn't really being met at the time? Well, it uh, it sort of came by chance because, uh, you know, back then we're talking, um, you know, uh, over 30 years ago, you know, you had the, the Appalachian wines and then you had Super Tuscans, which were all, you know, big, important, you know, great bottles of wine, but also somewhat expensive. And so, uh, at Italy, uh, must have been in 1990, um, the owner of a wine shop chain, uh, today very successful in Germany, uh, came to us and said, hey, guys, you know, we have a bit of a problem uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, we buy your wines, your Brunello, your Farnito Cabernet, your Vino Nobile, your Chianti Riserva, and the Germans love to drink your, your wines. Um, but they, since they are more expensive, they only drink your wines on the weekend. But, you know, the Germans, you know, they love wine, and they drink wine every day. So is there a way we can find uh, to have them drink Tuscan wines every day. And uh, so that's how the idea of Dogaiolo came out, mean, meaning that, uh, so the founding fathers, I was, uh, you know, uh, much younger back then and had, didn't have much of a clue, but they came home and they scratched their head and said, hey, you know, this is a moment where we're growing. We got a lot of young vineyards. We got a lot of vineyards all over Tuscany that were planted in the, are, are uh, um, you know, growing with pleasure. So how about we take these grapes, we put them in a barrel for six months and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So instead of the long aging of uh, the senior super Tuscans, the important super Tuscans, we give them a much quicker 
uh, turn around just to round them out. That way the wine still has, you know, the flavors of a young wine, but the tannins of a, of a wine that's been in barrels so are a little softer, a little rounder, and uh, easy, uh, you know, uh, easier drinking. And uh, that's how Dogaiolo was born, you know, and, uh, you know, at Dogaiolo, uh, basically, uh, with Dogaiolo, we invented the, the baby Super Tuscan category, you know, the everyday Super Tuscan category that uh, over 30 years ago didn't exist because it was either Fornito, Sassicaia, etc., etc., or, uh, or uh, nothing. Yeah, exactly. And I'm wondering, too, with the with this decision to make these wines in this style and to sort of meet this need that was, wasn't was being uh, met, when this kind of wine was being first produced and, and thought about, was it looked at as something that was for largely for the Italian market where you were your father's looking at, you know, kind of the export market at that point already, or, you know, who did they kind of see as being the, the person who would most gravitate towards this? Because obviously, you know, there's um, good wine is good wine and, and people the world over want it, um, certainly from Tuscany. But I'm just curious, was it sort of more a, a locally or nationally focused wine? Or was it something that even 30 years ago, they thought of as, you know, here's a wine that we think will do well ab- abroad? Well, you know, this is a little bit like uh, the first guy that invented the wheel, <laughs> you know, such a simple concept that worked and had so many applications, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so Dogaiolo, yeah, we, we created the first batch was uh, for uh, for this guy in Germany, uh, yep. Jax Weindepot. But then uh, we called uh, Mr. Opici and said, hey, you know, wh- what do you think of this concept? And we showed them the package, the beautiful bottle, oak leaves uh, on the front and uh, the flavor product sent a few samples and they loved it. So we sent it to them too. Uh, to a peachy, so it's you know it was one of those things where it was just obvious that mm-hmm. uh, there was a demand for it, but nobody had thought of it, and uh, and so that's uh, some of the things that you just fall in your lap out of luck, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, and it was it has been successful in the export markets, but in Italy it is very strong and very successful to the point that we've actually added a white and a rosato to it. Yeah, and I want to talk about those, but I want to first uh, ask uh, Katerina a question, which is, to some extent, um, you know, uh, Antonio was mentioning the the winemaking methodology and how it sort of departs from maybe some of the ways that the classic Super Tuscans have been made with longer barreling, and maybe even it's different in some sense from how the other wines in the Carpinetto portfolio are made. Has But I'm also curious, over the 30-year span of Dogaiolo, has the winemaking changed? Is it still basically the same approach that was uh, hit upon by your dad 30 years ago, or, or are you doing things a little differently? No, it's uh, very similar. So it's, um, uh, the, the winemaking is like my father uh, learned to me, and I want to follow this uh, way. Yeah, yes, because I think it's uh, the true case, the the good uh, way. So, is uh, Sangiovese and Cabernet Sauvignon is uh, a fermentation um, separate mm-hmm. because uh, we harvest in different time and uh, stay is uh, both uh, is a fermentation. Uh, under check uh, um, temperature, so around 25 degrees, and stay for a long time to the skin, over the skin, uh, and then uh, we transfer in the barrel, and stay about six 
eight months depends uh, the, of uh, the vintage. Gotcha. So it's uh, it's one of those wines where uh, we were able to uh, um, you know figure out the, the recipe right away, and then mm-hmm. of course there are some vintage variations here and there, but uh, the basic uh, direction was set uh, already in the right uh, on the right path at the beginning. Luckily. Antonio, you mentioned um, a moment ago about the the packaging and the labeling, and um, you know, as for those who are unfamiliar, you know, you can certainly look up a picture of the bottle. It, as you said, has those distinctive oak leaves on it. What what is the sort of significance of the packaging besides just being attractive to look at? But you know, what, what's the resonance there with Carpenetto and with Tuscany? Well, uh, so the the package, uh, so the the label uh, having the oak leaves uh, with fall colors are there because when we pick the grapes in the fall. Uh, the oak woods surrounding the vineyards are of this color. Mm-hmm. And so since it does have a six months uh, passage in oak barrels, uh, that was the inspiration uh, behind, uh, behind the package. It's actually, the, um, the label is a work of art. It, uh, it has got uh, gold and bronze and silver uh, colors on it. It requires several passes on, uh, on the press. It mm-hmm. really is a designer, a designer label. A work of art, typical of of Italy, you know. <laughs> it's true. I've heard I've heard a few things about Italian art in my day, and seen a few things to be fair too. That's that's a really interesting, and I'm curious too. You know, as then the story kind of progresses, and as you mentioned, Antonio, the uh, success of the Rosso um, kind of invites. Uh, a, you know, expanding into Bianco and Rosato. How, how did you kind of approach those wines? What what are they? What are they? You know, how are they made? What are they made from? And and how do they kind of fit into the broader picture of the not just of um, Dogaiolo but of the winery as a whole? Well, the the, the Rosato, for example, is a Sangiovese that comes from a northerly exposed uh, vineyard in uh, mostly Montepulciano, uh, and so we pick that vineyard because it maintains the freshness of the flavors, maintains the acidity. And it's just uh, a, a good, you know, a good uh, companion to, uh, of course, to the red. The white uh, also is uh, from the Montepulciano estate, the Vinonabri de Montepulciano estate. Then it's a blend of uh, about a third each of Chardonnay, and uh, that brings body. Sauvignon Blanc brings in aromatics, and uh, Grechetto brings in a mineral character. And the, the label of that one basically represents uh, a, a, a acacia flowers. Oh yeah, because that is what is uh, the flavors found in the wine, and it, and that is in bloom when the wine uh, is released in the spring. The the rosé inside has got uh, little uh, red berries wo- uh, that you find in the woods because you know and wild roses because those are the flavors you find in the wine. So this uh, um, Dogaiolo line basically is a playful. Uh, you know, it's a collection of three playful labels that uh, are unique and different from our, um, you know, more serious-looking uh, appellation ones, um, because it is a playful everyday uh, bottle of wine. Yeah, definitely. And I'm curious too. You know, when it comes to sort of talking about the the way that these uh, wines are made and a little bit about sort of the process in general, you know, a, a conversation that we have on Vine Pair on the podcast, on the website, kind of almost, uh, not if not daily, very regularly is talking about, you know, the, the way in which um, wine drinkers are thinking about, you know, sustainability, about the sort of processes that wineries are taking. And I think that for a lot of um, drinkers, there's a lot of interest and a lot of our listeners in understanding kind of how 
individual wineries, winemakers, et cetera, are viewing those topics. And, and you know, obviously Italy has and Tuscany has, as you mentioned, uh, thousands of years of viticultural history, but we're also dealing with some, you know, with a changing world and the changing landscape. So kind of how do you both think about sustainability and, and what does that kind of mean for um, Carpenetto? Well, uh, put very simple, uh, uh, simply, Zach, um, Caterina and I want to live our uh, estates in better shape than when we found them. And uh, uh, what does that mean? That means that we got to take a very long approach to uh, how we manage the land. And so, you know, we manage all of our vineyards uh, using uh, sustainable viticulture, precision viticulture. Uh, and that we do that because that has a much lower uh, carbon footprint than any other approach to viticulture that is currently known. And then, you know, we look at our uh, complete business and we do a carbon footprint analysis. And there we uh, have worked hard to become positive, meaning that uh, we have done taken a lot of steps to lighten our glass, which of course emits much less uh, uh, carbon, you know, having more efficient machinery and equipment. And uh, that all helps making our own electricity because uh, we have uh, uh, solar panels on all of our estates and we are basically uh, almost autosufficient. And, uh, and, that, and, and that plus we're managing all of our um, woods yeah, very actively so that uh, they are really all growth oak forests. They absorb a tremendous amount of CO2 as does our olive groves. And so um, our emissions, of course, we can't control because, uh, well, or we're trying to control and mitigate by lightening our glass and doing all of that. But then on the absorption side, we're very strongly uh, managing that so that we're amplifying our absorptions. And that makes it so that we're actually 26% positive on the carbon footprint. Can we do better? Yes. Uh, in fact, we're actively pursuing you know, ways to, to uh, improve on that number. And, uh, and that is what, what we do, you know, to uh, make sure that uh, every bottle of Carpinetto is uh, a virtuous one. Yeah. I'm curious, switching gears a little bit here, but it, the, something you were saying, Antonio, kind of made me uh, think about this. I'm wondering, you know, when we talk about sustainability and we talk about sort of the the questions and, and all these ways that um, wineries like yours are, are taking efforts to um, lower carbon footprint, mitigate all these kinds of aspects of wine production. I'm wondering too, you know, is the is there anything that's changed in the vineyard? Anything that you are doing differently? Um, I certainly understand and respect that there's a lot of, of tradition and a lot of ways in which, you know, the way that we're taught, it's obviously been producing great wine for, for 60 years. But I'm I'm wondering, you know, have you changed anything, or or as a team, have you changed anything in the in the vineyards themselves as well? Well, you know, uh, of course, uh, things are in constant evolution uh, for for many reasons. One is the climate uh, appears to be changing, and so you know <laughs> the way we used to manage the uh, the vineyards, uh, you know, when our uh, when we were kids, you know, are not the same than we're doing now. Because now, for example, just one example for many is that we use a, a substantial amount of cover crops to, you know, beef up, you know, the, the, the quality of the, of the soil mm -hmm. and also to um, improve the local fauna, including bees, 
uh, you know, native uh, uh, fauna and, and insects. Mm -hmm. uh, but then growing the canopy, depending on the vintage, now we tend to shade more than we would uh, in, uh, in the past. Then our crop levels are, uh, you know, I would say a third of what they were when uh, we were making fiascos, the ones we were mm -hmm. talking, we talked about, you know, uh, at the beginning here. So uh, certainly, many things have changed uh, in uh, in the in the viticulture, no doubt. I mean, um, but then also the clones of Sangiovese we're planting, the the rootstocks are all based on uh, university studies that uh, are uh, very enlightening because they really, you know, do the studies in uh, 20 years that it took the Etruscans 2,000 years yeah. to figure out. So these are, are giant leaps forward that we're making based on uh, soil analysis and, 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 and pairing the right soil with the right rootstock and the right uh, clones of Sangiovese. But then, you know, then we're dealing now with new problems, like, for example, spring frosts. Uh, that we never you know, really had, you know, uh, in our past, uh, at least not with the frequency that we have now. And so one of the things we're doing, uh, instead of putting Sangiovese, which is a relatively early um, uh, out of the gate varietal, uh, mm -hmm. in the warmer spot, uh, because then it will get uh, uh, nailed with the frost, what we're doing is we're putting later uh, grape varieties in the warmer spots so that uh, that when the frost does come you know because it seems to come one year yes and and uh, one year no then uh, then we have uh, a, a less of a chance of uh, the damage excellent so you know, just but see uh, Zach the problem more with us is that uh, it takes a generation mm -hmm. to uh, turn the ship around uh, <laughs> or maybe more and so basically what Katarina and I are doing today is for our kids, you know, and uh, and what they'll be doing is for their kids. I mean, it really takes uh, a tremendous amount of time to uh, to uh, uh, you. You can't just pivot on a, you can't turn on a dime uh, in our business. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point, and obviously the two of you are a great example of how uh, something that you know the previous generation established and founded has continued to grow and change and evolve through the next generation, and undeniably will continue to do so. I just have a couple more questions for the two of you before we wrap things up here. The first is, I am led to believe that there might be a fourth wine in the Dogoyolo portfolio that's, that's a I don't know if it's a work in progress or if it's going to be reaching here uh, in the U.S. relatively soon. But I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about this sort of uh, um, more reserved tier wine. Well, the wine uh, that you're talking about is uh, called Dogoyolo Oro. Dogoyolo Oro basically is a step up from the Dogoyolo Red. It comes from uh, older uh, higher density uh, vineyard plantings are all dry farmed, lower yields, and it is a wine that spends a little bit longer in oak. And it's basically um, the step up. It will be the weekend dogaiolo, so to speak. Uh, and uh, it will be reaching your shores uh, probably in the fall. Wonderful. I look forward to giving that one a try when it uh, when it is released. And then speaking of, of uh, well, I'm not sure what, but the transition here is a little rough. We'll have to deal with it. I do want to ask, too, because I feel like whenever I speak to winemakers um, in other parts of the world, and, and certainly in places like Tuscany, it's uh, it's incumbent upon me to ask a little bit about what visiting um, Tuscany and what visiting Carpenetto might be like, because something for all of us to dream about, those who haven't had the chance, uh, but might in the future. So what is it like for someone who decides they want to come pay a visit? Are there, you know, is it possible to come uh, taste? Is it possible to see the vineyards, etc.? What is the sort of visitor experience like? 
Well, if uh, the, um, the consumers uh, go to carpinedo.com, we have a we have a tasting room uh, uh, visiting uh, section, and there you can find uh, all kinds of uh, wine tasting opportunities. But uh, what is really fun to do is to really live the estate um, by booking, say, a walking tour of the vineyards and the olive groves. By um, we can even uh, uh, rent uh, e-bikes. And you need the e-bike, uh, incidentally, because it's all hilly in yeah. Tuscany. So unless you are uh, one of those athletes that do the Giro d'Italia, <laughs> uh, having an e-bike uh, is a little bit of a cheating, but uh, it does uh, it does help uh, with the experience. So, and it, and that way you can just go up and down the Tus the Tuscan countryside, which is, uh, anyways, a, a magnificent uh, uh, scenery. And Tuscany, anyway, it's uh, an open-air museum. So really, except for in many of the city uh, centers, uh, even where we are, except for electricity, it's like time travel to hundreds of years ago. You know, that's the only improvement we've had is, uh, you know, asphalt roads and electricity. Other than that, it is time travel. Very true. Well, uh, Antonio, Katerina, I really want to thank you for your time. Appreciate it very much. Uh, it's been fun to hear a little bit more about these wines, to see what's where they came from, what the history was, and what they're like now, and of course, what they will be in the future. So again, thank you both so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to one of those e-bike tours in my future, hopefully. Grazie mille. Grazie. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now, through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.